Hello, and welcome to the Global Migration Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies at UBC. My name is Gabrielle dumpies Wolver, and I'm your host. The Migration Center is located in the unceded, ancestral home of the Musqueam people. As we think about migration and mobility in this podcast, we remember that Musqueam people have dwelled here for millennia, and that this place is rightfully theirs. In this episode, I'm joined by a special collaborator and Migration Center affiliate, Thea Bracewell. Thea, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So tell us about what brings you to the center and to this podcast episode. Yeah, thanks. I'm a senior policy analyst with the Federal Department Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada. And this past fall, I was a policy practitioner fellow and adjunct professor at the UBC School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. And I focused on research that looks at gender mainstreaming and the intersection with migrant integration policies. And I wanted to learn how I could bring that back to my work at IRCC. And we should note here that this episode reflects your research as an SPPGA fellow when you were at UBC and doesn't represent the IRCC. So following that research, you and I collaborated on putting this episode together. But before we get there, what does this phrase gender mainstreaming mean anyways? Gender mainstreaming really refers to the process of embedding women's rights and empowerment within institutions to advance gender equality. So while women's rights have been part of EU and UN policy agreements for decades, the past few years have revealed the limits of those policies in practice. The pandemic really surfaced a lot of inequities and disparities that people knew about before, but women's needs and priorities weren't really accounted for to begin with. So I spoke with Dr. Rachel Minto from Cardiff University and Dr. Jasmine Sluches from Migration Policy Institute Europe to find out more. All right. Thanks, Thea. So let's give a listen to what you found out about women and migration and how institutions could advance gender equality. I think we often think about the topics of gender and migration in very siloed manners. And this is not only in the case of migration and gender-related policies, but also if we think about health or housing or any other policy area, really. And this is very problematic because, of course, all these different issues intersect, and especially migrant integration cuts across policy areas. And the same thing goes for gender. My name is Jasmine Slootjes, and I'm a senior policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute in Europe. My work focuses on migrant integration and migrant integration policymaking. Men and women have different experiences of migration. They have different experience of integrating within a host nation. They face different barriers to integration. And this is why it's really important that we take those gender mainstreaming tools and we apply them to the area of immigrant integration in order to have a policy that reflects those diverse needs of both the men and the women who are at the sharp end of these immigrant integration policies. I'm Dr. Rachel Minto. I'm an academic at the School of Law and Politics at Cardiff University and also a member of the Wales Governance Centre. So as a, a young feminist when I was doing my PhD, coming across gender mainstreaming was something really very exciting because what gender mainstreaming said was, we have this potential to change those institutions that are 
androcentric in nature. So they're, they were built for a, a particular type of person. They don't reflect the needs and interests of everybody in society. We have the possibility with gender mainstreaming to reimagine those structures. One of the reasons why I wanted to look at immigrant integration policy in the European Union was that it's an area that isn't obviously gendered. So if you look at, say, gender-based violence, sexual health and reproductive rights, trafficking, these are areas that have a more obvious gender dimension. One of the things that gender mainstreaming does is that it takes those same gender tools and it applies those to areas that you think don't actually have a gender dimension to them. So, for example, transport. You could be forgiven for thinking that this isn't necessarily a policy area that has a heavy gender dimension, but actually, let's take a look at this. Men and women use public transport systems in different ways. We know that women access healthcare more frequently than men do. So we need to ensure that bus routes actually go to hospitals and medical centers. If women have primary caring responsibilities, you need to make sure that there are spaces on buses for prams. And it's not that long ago, actually, that you couldn't guarantee that your bus would have a space for a buggy. You need to take those gender tools and look at these different policy areas that on the surface don't really seem like they'd have a gender dimension, but they actually do. And this is also the case in the area of immigrant integration. We increasingly see more attention for the topic of gender in the migrant integration space over time. And this was further fueled by the COVID-19 pandemic, specifically because COVID-19 really pushed certain issues on the agenda. MPI Europe conducted a study about the impact of COVID-19 on integration and migrant integration policymaking. Uh, and we compared the impact of COVID-19 both in North America and in Europe by talking to high-level policymakers and really speaking through what changed during this period and this time. And what is really interesting is that the crisis sparked lots of innovation that can really give us lessons to how to improve migrant integration policies moving forward. But unsurprisingly, the study illuminated problems that women migrants in particular face, problems made worse by the pandemic, but that have been known to exist for a long time before then. We saw that many migrant women were overrepresented among some of the frontline workers. Many women work in domestic work. These jobs are often not protected. So during the pandemic, when we went into lockdown, these women were often not eligible for special services or social support from the government. So we saw a lot of additional effects in poverty, unemployment for migrant women. And then on the other hand, we saw an increase in domestic violence, while at the same time increased barriers to access support that was usually there in person for women that are facing gender-based violence. Because when you're at home, maybe with the partner that is abusing you, it's very hard to call a support service and have the privacy to explain your situation. So gender mainstreaming itself is a process. The end goal of gender mainstreaming is gender equality, and it seeks to tackle inequality at a structural level. 
But obviously, gender mainstreaming was adopted at an international level in the mid-90s and then was, uh, became part of the EU treaties in 1997. And I think we will all have noticed we have not seen the gender revolution. There are international frameworks in place to address the rights of women and the responsibilities of states to ensure those rights. These include CEDA, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which is described as an international bill of rights for women. The concept of gender mainstreaming was first introduced in 1985 at the Nairobi World Conference on Women. Ten years later, the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action was unanimously adopted by 189 countries at the 4th UN World Conference on Women. So gender mainstreaming has been in place for almost three decades. I think there's a lot of really great recommendations, both in CEDAW and the Beijing platform, both mention the, the need to access to healthcare. And I think that is a factor that's sometimes a little bit overlooked and Often the assumption is that the labor market integration rates are a lot worse for women because they don't want to work or because their education is worse or because they have children and they want to be at home with their children. But very often we see that they do want to work, they're able to work, but it's actually their health issues that keep them from accessing the labor market. You cannot integrate if you're not healthy. And at the same time, being integrated promotes good health. So I think it's kind of a reinforcing cycle. It's quite fascinating because I think a lot of the migration policies actually have the risk of making people sick or increasing the risk of future health problems. We must acknowledge that migrant women are amongst the most marginalized and discriminated against people within our society. There are a high risk of poverty and social exclusion due to the barriers they face in integration. Barriers they face as women and barriers they face as migrants. One of the key issues for a number of women is their lack of independent legal status. A woman might be in a host nation because she is an economic migrant. She might be in a host nation as part of family reunification. But that independent legal status is something that's very significant. They face at least this double discrimination when it comes to accessing the, the labor market. They suffer from notable de-skilling. So where their skills, their qualifications, their expertise are not readily recognized by the host labor market. There are particular problems around access to childcare, partly because of those lack of social networks, and that creates another barrier when it comes to accessing the labor market. Language can be a particular problem. We know as well that men and women use public services and access public services in different ways. And we need to ensure that migrant women are equipped and supported to access the services that they need to access. And this will be likely a different set of services from those of their male counterparts. As we've heard, the whole approach of gender mainstreaming is to put women's rights and empowerment into every area of policy so that it's consistently addressed. But that in itself is one of the main concerns about gender mainstreaming. When you try to integrate gender equality into every policy, you might end up with no strong gender equality policy at all. 
So mainstreaming came a little bit from the field of, of gender equality and has been adopted in the field of migrant integration policy making. But if you mainstream both migrant integration policies and gender policies, they can be a bit hidden. So you don't have one particular gender strategy, but whatever policy you make, whether it's housing or education, you make sure that the concerns for specific groups or specific inequalities that you find in society are part of every single policy. But what happens in practice is that it's a little bit everywhere, but there's no real core strategy and there's no real targeted action. Yeah, I think there's a lot of positives to mainstreaming, but there is this trade-off. So how do we make sure that we actually improve the situation? So that expression that it becomes everybody's and nobody's responsibility, this was one of the very valid concerns raised by feminist scholars when gender mainstreaming was first introduced. So in order for gender mainstreaming to work, it is essential that you have that political buy-in, you have that leadership, and the, the lead also has to have the power to oversee the implementation of gender mainstreaming and the power to be able to hold others to account. And there are lots of other things that have to come as part of that piece, but without that focal point within the institution, then it becomes very dangerous for gender mainstreaming. I mean, really, it's quite extraordinary if you think about it, the rise and rise and rise of gender mainstreaming from when it was first introduced on an international stage. It has been adopted at international level, state level, sub-state level, different organizations, really, really widely adopted. Yet, when it actually comes to the fruits of gender mainstreaming, at best we can say there have been diverse results. So I think it's very important to keep this very intersectional approach to look at how a very wide range of identity elements and all these different systems of inequality intersect, interplay. And that is a much broader discussion than just migrant integration or just gender equality. On the other hand, there's strong currents in society that are also not very welcoming to migrants. So this often has a very different impact on migrant integration policies, often making them more punitive or uh, really shifting the story there, which does not open up a road to include gender concerns in migrant integration policies. So sometimes we even see it going a little bit backwards. But one thing that I would really like to point out is here the difference between paper and practice. So sometimes we do see the inclusion or mention of gender or gender equality or references to all these great conventions or policy frameworks. But what does that mean in practice? Of course, you need a commitment on paper. It's already a great first step, but it's not enough. And you need actual practices on the ground. So how do you implement that? How do you put that in practice? How are you really going to promote it? It's been 28 years since the UN adopted gender mainstreaming. However, UN Women has noted that, like many other strategies, gender mainstreaming is only as good as the efforts made to implement it. So I asked Dr. Minto and Dr. Slutiez, what are some practical approaches for effective gender mainstreaming that also support successful migrant integration? 
There are a range of different tools that are uh, associated with gender mainstreaming and they fall into three broad categories. And uh, these are categories that are actually set down uh, by the Council of Europe. The Council of Europe wrote a really definitive piece on gender mainstreaming back in uh, 19, uh, 1998. So the first set of tools we have associated with gender mainstreaming are analytical tools. So these analytical tools are such as qualitative research, quantitative research, forecasts, cost-based analyses, uh, gender impact assessments, um, and they essentially provide that data through which we can explore different policy areas and different policy problems. The second set of tools are educational tools. And these educational tools are really seeking to uh, raise awareness of gender mainstreaming, increase capacity around gender mainstreaming. It also includes say, bringing external experts into policymaking to, to help promote gender equality. And then we have that third set of tools, and these are a really important set of tools, the consultative and participatory tools. And so it's through these tools that gender mainstreaming really engages with civil society organizations, with experts by experience, so those who will feel the results of the policies. One of the first things you should do if you want to improve policies is talk to the people who are the beneficiaries of those policies or who are affected by them. And I think they often have very important input about what could be improved, what is working, what is not working, what could be changed. I think this is something that has been very much overlooked in the past years. And we finally see more attention to not only make policies about certain groups, but with those groups. I think we do see experimentation, but yeah, there's often still similar issues. Migrants and refugees are often brought in at one particular point. They can share their story, but are then removed from the table when real decisions are being made or when certain policies are really being discussed. So we need more involvement with not only sharing the information, but also shaping the agenda, shaping the questions that are being asked, and also being involved in shaping the policies that come out of it or the recommendations that come out. So one of the real critiques we've had of gender mainstreaming is that there's been this overemphasis on these more analytical tools. So essentially what happens there is that you have your policy paradigm and it remains untouched. You just bring in your gender segregated data. You might do your, your gender impact assessment, but you're adding women into this existing policy paradigm. With the more transformative variants of gender mainstreaming, this is when you really need to engage with those civil society organizations, with grassroots activists, with experts by experience, so you can understand from them what the problem is. And this is when gender mainstreaming can become really, really powerful. So often I think if you can really distill down this message, surely this is something where you can have a really wide buy-in because we're going to have more effective policy if actually that policy-making process really accommodates, acknowledges, listens to, engages with those diverse needs and experiences. 
So given that it's so difficult and has had, I would say, minimal success in various contexts, what does that look like? What do the preconditions look like to set that up so that it does succeed in different sectors and for different populations and in government systems and institutions? I think this is a really, really important question. This is something that uh, Dr. Luke Mergiet um, and I had published in a paper back in 2018, and it built on a piece of work that she had previously done, published in Mergiet and William 2013. And what we always come back to, these five dimensions you need in order to ensure a successful gender mainstreaming. The first is formalized adoption. So this is seeing an explicit high level formal commitment. So it's in your treaty, it's in your policy texts, it's in the framework programs that you set so that it's a clear, unambiguous commitment to mainstreaming gender. Uh, the second dimension focuses on the structures and procedures. Very basically, there need to be clear guidelines, dedicated tools to support work to mainstream gender and dedicated bodies within the institution to mainstream gender to make sure you've got all of the tools that are required to actually do the job. The third dimension is quality. So this is where you need to have that investment in accordance with those procedures that you have set out. Investment of resources, human and financial resource. You need to ensure that there are those quality assurance mechanisms, as I say, to ensure that gender mainstreaming is unfolding in a way that it ought to. The fourth dimension is accountability and compliance. Very basically, we need to ensure that that process itself is transparent, that it can be scrutinized. So you need to ensure that documents are available. You need to ensure that actors are identifiable. And you also, as part of that accountability process, you need to ensure that there is regular monitoring. So that final dimension is stability. So this is ensuring that gender mainstreaming takes effect across policy areas. So it's not siloed in particular areas, but this goes across the board and also that it's stable over time. So it's not that you see within a particular five-year period that gender mainstreaming is implemented to high standards with a particular area and then just falls off the map. It has to be consistent over time. How do we reconcile the ostensive neutrality of the European bureaucracy with the need to address complex and gendered social issues through gender mainstreaming? This is a really important question. And there's a real challenge for gender mainstreaming because bureaucracies like to see themselves as being neutral. They like to see themselves as being free from politics and gender equality and the promotion of gender equality is seen as something very political. So there's a bit of a mismatch there. I think there are two responses to this. One of them is really focusing on gender mainstreaming in the institution itself. Now, these policy-making organizations ought to be reflective of the society that they serve. 
but more often than not, that simply isn't the case. So if you can have institutions that are more representative, that they look like the people that they are serving. So if you see more women at the senior level, if you're able to promote a more inclusive culture, promote a work-life balance, if we have these types of institutions, then they'd be better equipped to be able to advance gender mainstreaming. One of the things that Dr. Lutmergit and I looked at when we were exploring gender mainstreaming within the European Commission was that what does happen is that there is lots of work at the lower levels within the bureaucracy around gender mainstreaming and then somehow it just gets lost and it gets lost in part because you have these very powerful senior civil servants who are able to override the work that is undertaken at those more junior levels. Now, if you have a person and a, or a body within the institution that is responsible for overseeing the implementation of gender mainstreaming, if your processes are transparent, if the documents are available, if individuals are identifiable, then it's more difficult for that to take place. Also, at the same time, if you are working to create an institution that is more inclusive, where the hierarchies are not as pronounced such that this work can be overridden in this way, then this is another way in which progress of gender mainstreaming can be pushed forward. And getting people invested upstream, and this is the thing, it's got to be, I mean, just the frustration when women are just added in. And this is one of the risks, as I'm sure you know, with gender impact assessments, they can become such a tick box exercise and decisions have already been made, we'll add some kind of gender dimension, we'll add in our gender segregated statistics, fine, and then do what we were going to do anyway. It's deeply problematic, and it's not effective policy. And what about capacity building for the people that are responsible for shaping policy and programming? A really key challenge is a lack of gender expertise and something that Lute and I have said in our piece that was published back in 2021 was really you need to see those uh, civil servants, those officials who are normally involved in policy making having that gender training. What often happens is you have gender experts brought into the organization at particular points in time to help inform policy development. But actually what you need, you need that institutional capacity to understand gender expertise, to understand gender equality. You need that in the organization. In addition to that, you do need to have people who understand organizational institutional change. You need to have the people who will be equipped to be able to engage with those diverse sets of actors that you need to engage with if you really want to have a more transformative interpretation of gender mainstreaming. In addition to these skills and expertise, Dr. Sluchez talks about the importance of multi-stakeholder partnerships and using evidence in making effective gender policies. One example of this is the EU website on integration, which shows how data sharing and accountability can intersect on a platform for migration. 
I think the European website on integration is such an excellent resource and also a unique tool for Europe and the EU because it brings together best practices and governance models uh, in migrant integration on one website. Uh, every country has a uh, country rapporteur that shares best practices and there's also cities or, or NGOs that can submit practices so they can learn from each other. Uh, so it's a really rich resource of information. Yet at the same time, it's not quite evidence. So reporting on the policies is great, but evidence is about how policies shape outcomes. So you need the causal link between how the practices that you put in place shape integration outcomes. So I think what we very often see is we only look at the outcomes. Do we see lower unemployment rates? Do we see better language proficiency? But they often don't link up the, the practice and the outcome. And that is evidence. Then you know that it's actually the program that is creating the positive impact. So that is very important and also quite challenging to create, to be honest, methodologically. Can you elaborate on the common obstacles in evidence-based policymaking and describe the key strategies to overcome them to increase learning about what works, under which conditions, and how to use this knowledge to design effective migrant integration policies? We recently wrote a policy brief to really explore this topic. And what we found is that there's a whole variety of reasons. One would be that it's a very politicized policy area, so it's often very difficult to push for certain policy solutions, even when they're based on evidence, just because it's so politicized. Policies are often forged in the heat of crisis. So, for example, right now, with the displacement of many people from Ukraine, the first focus is to give people housing, shelter, take care of basic needs. And there's very limited time to set up an evaluation program or look up all the evidence that is out there and how can we set up the most effective reception system. Of course, hopefully you do this work prior to a crisis happening. That's what would make a resilient integration system. But yeah, so we see this a variety of reasons and there's actually many more. But luckily it's not only doom and gloom and there's also ways forward to make sure there is more evidence in the policymaking process to make migrant integration more effective. As we've heard from Dr. Minto and Dr. Slutiez, the intersection of gender and migration and governance is very complex. Despite all that we've learned over the last few decades since gender mainstreaming was first introduced, it's still a challenge to convince people within institutions that this is something that ought to be done and that needs to be taken seriously. Effective gender mainstreaming remains widely accepted as the most practical means to achieve gender equality and the empowerment of women. We know that it requires high-level political buy-in, an investment in resources, capacity building, and accountability mechanisms to realize substantive gender equality for all migrants. You are not gonna have this massive transformation overnight. Partly because one of the huge benefits of gender mainstreaming is that, in its most transformative, it seeks to mobilize actors at all levels of the policymaking process throughout the policymaking process and across all policy areas as well. It acknowledges that you can't think about policies in silos, but there are unintended consequences going in every different direction. So you need to be mainstreaming gender, thinking about promoting equality across the board. It's not going to happen overnight, but this is ultimately where 
as I say, that young feminist, that light is still burning inside me. That's ultimately where we need to be. I mean, what else if not gender mainstreaming? I mean, I mean, what else do you do? In terms of kind of the next innovation, I mean, what? Special thanks to Dr. Rachel Minto and Dr. Jasmine Sluches for sharing their time and expertise with us. You can find links to their work on our website. And special thanks to Thea Bracewell for being our guest host and collaborator on this episode. The Global Migration Podcast is produced by me, Gabrielle Tumpus Boulevard, for the Center for Migration Studies, with the support of Atia Yekta, Francine Rodriguez, and Center Director Antje Ellerman. We acknowledge once again the Musqueam place that supports the Center's work, and that gratitude for it is not enough. For more episodes and information, please visit us at migration.ubc.ca. Thanks for tuning in.